Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. If you have not, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we have some amazing merch and plenty of other things for you guys. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today, we're going to a little fun one, a little Japanese fun one, about rolling stuff around, collecting it, and creating new planets and stars. I remember when this game came out and seeing my cousins play it and... Just never having seen anything like this before. I thought it was the most bizarre game that I had ever seen in my life. But it was so addicting and fun for no reason at all. Just amazing what can come from something as simple as just rolling a ball around a map, trying to pick up as much stuff as you can. Yeah, and the, the concept of taking your, which we're talking about, Katamari, Damase or Damashe. Uh, you take your Katamari, roll it around, and one of the coolest ideas or additions, principles of the game is as your Katamari gets larger and larger and larger, you can pick up stuff that you weren't able to pick up before. So if you start picking up like crayons and erasers and bugs, you start to get a little bigger and getting a fork and maybe a cup and a pencil and eventually picking up people and buildings and all this like crazy stuff that gets added to it for such a simple idea of a game it has such a fun concept behind it. Absolutely. So let's just hop into it. Katamari Damacy, or in translation, Clump Spirit, is a third-person puzzle action video game developed and published by Namco for the PlayStation 2. It was released in Japan in March 2004 and in North America in September of 2004. Designer Keita Takahashi struggled to pitch the game to Namco's superiors, eventually seeking student aid from the Namco Digital Hollywood Game Laboratory to develop the project for less than one million U.S. dollars. As director, Takahashi emphasized concepts of novelty, ease of understanding, and enjoyment. The game's plot concerns a diminutive prince on a mission to rebuild the stars, constellations, and moon, which were inadvertently destroyed by his father, the king of all cosmos. This is achieved by rolling a magical, highly adhesive ball called a katamari around various locations, collecting increasingly larger objects ranging from thumbtacks to human beings to mountains until the ball has grown large enough to become a star. Katamari Damacy's story, settings, and characters are highly stylized and surreal, often both celebrating and satirizing facets of Japanese culture. Katamari Damacy was well-received in Japan and North America, becoming a surprise hit and winning several awards. Its success led to the creation of the Greater Katamari franchise and inspired numerous subsequent games imitating its quirky, colorful charm. 
Some critics have hailed it as a cult classic and one of the greatest video games of all time, praising its gameplay, replay value, humor, originality, and Shibuya K soundtrack. A high-definition remaster of the game Katamari Damacy Reroll was released on Windows and Nintendo Switch in December of 2018, on PS4 and Xbox One in November of 2020, and on Stadia in September of 2021. Now, most of us know Namco from early years of Pac-Man um, into future years of Pac-Man, but 3D. And then obviously there are titles of Pac-Man, but different. <laughs> <laughs> but, Miss Pac-Man. But, but Miss Pac-Man, of course. But I'm just going to give you a brief summary of Namco before they were kind of Namco Bandai and where they started with it. So Namco Limited was a Japanese multinational video game and entertainment company headquartered in Ota, Tokyo. It held several national branches, including Namco America in Santa Clara, California, Namco Europe in London, Namco Taiwan in Kyushu, and Shanghai Namco in mainland China. Namco was founded by Masaya Nakamura on June 1st, 1955, as Nakamura Saisakusho, beginning as an operator of coin-operated amusement rides. After reorganizing to Nakamura Saishiko Company Limited in 1959, a partnership with Walt Disney Productions provided the company with the resources to expand its operations. In the 1960s, it manufactured electromechanical arcade games such as the 1965 hit Periscope. It entered the video game industry after acquiring the struggling Japanese division of Atari in 1974, distributing games such as Breakout in Japan. The company renamed itself Namco in 1977 and published GB, its first original video game, a year later. Among Namco's first major hits was the fixed shooter Galaxian in 1979. It was followed by Pac-Man in 1980, the best-selling arcade game of all time. Namco prospered during the golden age of arcade video games in the early 1980s, releasing popular titles such as Galaga, Xevious, and Pole Position. Galaga is my jam. A lot of Pizza Hut yep. memories playing that Galaga Pac-Man machine. They started coming in the little duos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now that you have things uh, like the retro arcades that are coming out from like 1UP Arcade, you can go ahead and play all these in kind of this mini form in your house. Yeah, absolutely. And on top of that, they've been doing Namco Museum games for as long as I can remember. So these games mm-hmm. are widely, widely available if you don't want a whole arcade game. And they're a lot of simple fun. Exactly. Namco entered the home console market in 1984 with conversions of its arcade games for the MSX and the Nintendo Family Computer. Its American division majority acquired Atari games in 1985 before selling a portion of it in 1987 following disagreements between the two companies. Arguments over licensing contracts with Nintendo led Namco to produce games for competing platforms, such as the Sega Genesis, TurboGrafx-16, and PlayStation. Namco continued to produce hit games in the 1990s, including Ridge Racer, Tekken, and Taiku no Tatsujin. Namco endured numerous financial difficulties in the late 1990s and 2000s as a result of the struggling Japanese economy and diminishing arcade market. In 2005, Namco merged with Bandai to form Namco Bandai Holdings, a Japanese entertainment conglomerate. It continued producing games until it was merged into Namco Bandai Games in 2006. 
Namco produced several multi-million selling game franchises, such as Pac-Man, Galaxian, Tekken, Tails, Ridge Racer, and Ace Combat. It operated video arcades and amusement parks globally, and also produced films, toys, and arcade cabinets, and operated a chain of restaurants. Namco is remembered in retrospect for its unique corporate model, its importance to the industry, and its advancements in technology. Its successor, Bandai Namco Entertainment, and its subsidiaries continue to use the Namco brand for their video arcades and other entertainment products. And that's the thing, is like you've again, we've all played Pac-Man, but if you haven't, you've been touched in some way or another. The Tails games are fantastic. Ridge Racer is another one that there are all these games that never, in my opinion, make it to like boom, top of the charts type stuff that all of us are looking for. But we've been touched in some way, whether you've played Tekken, Tails, any of those, it's always been there. But what I want to know about, and I know Derek does from a little bit of inflection, where can I get me some of these band Bandai Namco restaurants? Oh man. Yeah. I absolutely wanted to check that out. That really piques my interest. Because mm-hmm. we just had the, you know, Pizza Hut, not really quite as exciting with the arcade cabinet in the corner, but you know, a nineties restaurant that a themed <laughs> restaurant with the themed games in it. I'm just saying. And you know I have no idea if it's good or not. <laughs> right. You know what's really cool about this too is these games, uh, they really are very popular. Alex is right that these didn't really bring things, I think, to the next level. You know, this wasn't like a Super Mario Brothers on home console level of game-changing environment or Legend of Zelda or anything like that. But for me, these Namco games were some of the games that I remember earliest of being able to have that sort of like parental connection like my dad grew Mm -hmm. up in the 80s played a lot of these games in the arcade so when we had namco museum on like n64 and all of a sudden my dad is crushing me in pac-man like that was kind of (laughs) eye-opening to me and right now i think especially if you're a nintendo fan you're getting a lot of that nostalgia factored in where parents can share games with their kids that Mm -hmm. you know people Alex and I's age grew up with the Namco games were kind of that for me growing up. So yeah. a lot of cool stuff within Namco. Yeah. Cause you, like you said, it, it took that dip eventually into the nineties into two thousands. Like you say, you're playing the stuff that your dad grew up with in those eighties and took that dips. So there's nothing there, but as the two thousands hit and they started acquiring more series and playing through those, like, you know, um, Tales of Symphonia, which is one of my favorite Tales games, is getting a brand new remaster for the Switch. So like all these kids who didn't play it on the Dreamcast or GameCube era can go ahead and play it now and get that feeling that I had when I wrote a whole report um, in fifth grade about it. You know, <laughs> so there's definitely those options you can do when you're in grade school. How, how did that report go over in Catholic school? Oh, it was fantastic because <laughs> it was a comparison of the 80s. And for some reason, I brought in Super Mario and then I compared it to Tales of Symphonia, but nice. Beside the point. <laughs> but let's talk about <laughs> what it took uh, Keda and all of like the Namco family to create it. So Keda Takahashi had studied art and entered the Musashino Art University to study sculpting in 1995. During his studies, he came to a philosophy that his art needed to combine practical elements along with a bit of whimsy and humor. After graduation, Takahashi no longer had the desire to pursue sculpting as a full-time career and saw the potential to become involved in video games as a means to continue his art interest in a larger medium. 
Joining Namco as an artist around 1999, Takahashi worked on a number of smaller projects for the publisher. One of these was called Action Drive, inspired by Crazy Taxi, but with more spy-based elements atop the driving gameplay. During this, Takahashi came up with the ideas of the characters that would be central to Katamari Damase, the king, the queen, and the prince of all cosmos. His idea would have been that the queen had been kidnapped by agents on Earth, and the lazy king sends the prince to rescue her. To do this, the player would use the diminutive prince's head, shaped like a hammer, to stun humans, after which the prince would then drive the humans around by putting a steering wheel on the back of the human's head. Takahashi felt this would lead to interesting creative gameplay, allowing the player to create havoc as the prince, followed and misguided suggestions from the king, but the project leader rejected the idea. An action drive, unfortunately or fortunately, was eventually cancelled. While working on other projects, Takahashi continued to try to think of game ideas, seeking to grow beyond being just an artist for Namco. Takahashi cited two concepts that led to the inspiration of Katamari Damase. The first was a prototype shown by Sony Computer Entertainment called Densen, and it's Japanese for Powerline, that had the player as a young girl traverse floating islands of various homes connected by power lines. The game, though never released, gave Takahashi the idea that the ordinary world could be made interesting with only small changes to perception, and that a game could be fun without the need to cause violence. The second idea was from the game of Tamakoragashi, played in Japanese schools, undakai, or sports days. In Tamakoragashi, students attempt to push a giant ball into a goal. Both those ideas led him to thinking of a game where spinning a ball would roll ordinary stuff into it, making the ball larger and larger over time. The evening he conceived of this idea, he spoke to a friend, one of the game designers in Namco, to see if it made for a good game idea, who agreed it had potential. The next day, he spoke to his former boss, Mitsuoshi Ozakai, about the concept, further adding a way to reuse the king and prince characters he had previously proposed, who also agreed it would make for a great game. Why don't I have a feeling that he watched a child get rolled over by one of these giant balls? <laughs> He's like, Pretty what much. if that kid never made it out of that ball and then went into space? <laughs> yeah, what if it went into space? And what if we took the idea of like Takeshi's Castle and just made like ridiculous things we have with that? And made it into a cool game. And again, this, you can see from his early ones on where he's like, let's just stun humans, slam a steering wheel on the back of their head and drive them around. You know, it's a good concept to be like Crazy Taxi, right? And it's like, oh, okay, well, no, but I like the initiative. <laughs> yeah, he definitely had an interesting perspective, I think, on the world very early on in, in these conceptualization periods. So yeah, just a little. Glad that we got uh, Katamari instead, though. Some of the other stuff might have been a little weird. However, as Takahashi was in Namco's art department and not in game design, there was no easy route for him to propose this idea to Namco's superiors. Ozaki suggested a novel approach for Takahashi through the Namco Digital Hollywood Game Laboratory. At the time, Namco had been following in the model that Konami had used in 1997 
Konami established the Konami Computer Entertainment School to help educate new game developers, which were eventually hired in Konami, and several of the experimental ideas founded by the school during this time became products within the Konami Games and Music Division, which was later Bamani, that were highly successful, including Beat Mania, Guitar Freaks, and Dance Dance Revolution. Namco hoped the Digital Hollywood Game Laboratory would follow a similar path. At the time, Masaya Nakamura was principal of this school and oversaw one senior thesis class where the students were being trained on 3D modeling towards producing a game prototype with the help of other Namco employees, which could potentially be made into a full game. Ozaki suggested to Takahashi that he could have the students of this class create the 3D objects needed to populate his game world. Takahashi took Ozaki's advice, joining the project to help produce the prototype for his game. Alongside about 10 students from the Digital Hollywood program, he had been able to gain some visual design artists from Namco to help with the prototype, but had difficulty in getting any game development engineers due to the low priority of the school. He was fortunate to find that some of the engineers from Namco's arcade game division were going to be laid off and he was able to convince three of them to join his team to retain their jobs within Namco. One initial difficulty faced in developing the prototype was their choice of platform, the PlayStation 2. At the time the project started, Sony had just announced the specifications for the console, which was built from the ground up to support 3D graphics via the Emotion engine. However, Sony had not provided any updated software development kits believing that developers would be, you know, able to figure out the hardware. As a result, the console was difficult to develop for at its launch. In contrast, Nintendo had recently announced the GameCube, and that it would provide more developer-friendly features in contrast to the previous Nintendo 64 console. Thus, Takahashi's team decided to develop for the GameCube for their prototype, even though the final game was expected to be a PlayStation 2 release. In creating the prototype, Takahashi had envisioned that while the ball the player rolled around would grow as they rolled over objects, it would also shrink if they collided with obstacles and lost objects from it. This would have been tied to an interactive music track, which would have started off simple with a small ball and becoming more complex and full as it got larger. Technically, the team found they could not implement this shrinking mechanic due to memory limitations and further found that with the interactive music concept, it was not fun to shrink back down and hear the music regress to a simpler form. The shrinking concept as well as the interactive music approach were subsequently dropped. The prototype was completed within about six months, in time for the year's Japan Media Arts Festival or exhibition. Takahashi also presented the game for an internal review, leading Namco to greenlight the game's further development. Full work on Katamari Damase began in late 2001. Namco assigned Now Production, based in Osaka, to help bring the game to the PlayStation 2. Takahashi was initially concerned about having to work with an external studio in a different location, but found that the Namco and Now Production teams worked well together. The full team consisted of about 20 members between the two companies, and Namco had allocated a budget of about 100 million yen, which is roughly $650,000 to $800,000 US dollars at the time of production for the game. This was about the 10th of the budget allocated for Namco's blockbuster titles 
such as Ridge Racer or Soul Calibur. The full game took a year and a half to develop, with eight months of prototyping from the digital Hollywood version. Takahashi said that the team was aiming for four key points in developing the game. Novelty, ease of understanding, enjoyment, and humor. Iwatani compared the game to Namco's Pac-Man, which focused on simplicity and innovation and served as a template for future games from the company. At one point during development, Takahashi proactively ignored advice from Namco to increase the complexity of the game. The core gameplay of Katamari Damase is the subject of U.S. Patent 7402104. Game Performing Method, Game Apparatus, Storage Medium, Data Signal, and Program. The patent, issued in 2009, primarily describes how the game maintains the roughly spherical nature of the Katamari when objects are picked up, though it extends to concepts such as tracking objects collected based on temperature or weight values, which were modes included with later games of the series. So just an interesting piece I found. I was researching some more stuff on it. It's interesting to see how, especially like random patents, we know the US is kind of all over the place. But for this to be specifically like spherical gameplay where it grows and shrinks with this. Also temperature stuff. <laughs> it's just, it's interesting to see how that is. And then based on like, oh, I want to make a game like this. I might have to pay for a licensing fee based on this copyright that is on this thing. It's just interesting. But I wanted to talk about how Takahashi was much more in that realm, like they compared it to Pac-Man. Simplicity and fun over complexity and things to do. And... I just want to touch right now on gaming as it is in late 2022. We see a lot more indie devs take that approach and get these really cool either cult classics or, you know, big name games that are out right now versus some of those AAA titles that put so much into it that it just isn't worth it or not fun or feels like a job. And, and, and like, I like his approach to how he did this. And this is sort of like a hybrid in that sense, where he's taking that indie developer mentality with a bigger budget and a, a larger company behind him. And so there is a little bit of that pressure, as we said, from that bigger company, like, hey, we want to make sure that this game makes money because, yeah, you're not going to get the big budget of a Soul Calibur, sure. Yeah. But we're going to pump money into this and we expect it to do well. So, you know, make sure that you consider us. and. Fortunately, he didn't. Who knows what the game would have turned out to be had he taken that advice, because sometimes the safer things aren't always the better things. Mm -hmm. um, and we ended up with like a really cool game. Yeah, it, it really worked out for him in the end. Now, good thing they had that patent, too, because <laughs> I think simplicity in a game like this, you could get a lot of copycats. Yeah. You see the success and you know how simple it is. So to have that patent and protections in place... I think was important. It absolutely is. And, you know, this was more of a concrete thing you can do. Like, here's a very specific thing that is happening versus trends. I guess I wouldn't say copycats. I would say trends that are picked up, like the Overwatch trend of like map versus map, which became very popular, like Team Fortress 2. And then the same thing with like Fortnite in Battle Royale modes, which was kind of like DayZ had that original idea with it and then was implemented in a larger and in theory, better way in Fortnite. So I want to talk about the gameplay. It's, it's relatively simple, but there are some interesting aspects of it. 
So the player controls the prince as he rolls the Katamari around houses, gardens, and towns in order to meet certain parameters set by the king of all cosmos. The player uses the two analog sticks on the DualShock controller in a manner similar to the classic arcade game Battlezone to control the direction the Katamari rolls. Other controls can be triggered by the player to gain a quick burst of speed, flip the prince to the other side of the Katamari, and more. Objects that are smaller than the Katamari will stick to it when the player comes into contact with them, while greater objects can be hurdles. Colliding at high speed with any may cause objects to fall off of the Katamari, slowing the player's progress. The game uses size, weight, and surface area to determine if an object will stick to the Katamari. This allows slender objects such as pencils that are wider than the Katamari to be picked up, and these will alter how the Katamari rolls until more objects are picked up. So you get that like ka-clunk, ka-clunk, ka-clunk aspect of it if you just pick up some of these like weird shaped objects. Animals such as cats will chase the Katamari, knocking things from it, but once the Katamari is great enough, it will scare the animals away, and they can even be rolled up once they are chased down. As objects stick to the Katamari, the Katamari will grow, eventually allowing objects that were once hurdles to be picked up and creating access to areas that were formerly blocked. In this manner, the player might start the game by picking up thumbtacks and ants and slowly work up to the point where the Katamari is picking up buildings, mountains, and clouds. Unlike its sequel, We Heart Katamari, there are only large as possible levels, here called Make a Star. However, by beating stages 4, 8, and the moon quickly enough and with a large enough Katamari, eternal stages are unlocked. Eternal stages have no time limit and can be played as long as the player wants. However, all of these stages have a finite number of objects to roll up and as such have a maximum size. The Make a Star mode in Katamari Damase is the primary mode where the player must grow the Katamari to a specific size in a limited amount of time. The typical mission given by the King of All Cosmos is the Make a Star mode where the player needs to grow the Katamari to the specific size within the given time frame. Other missions have more specific collecting rules, such as collecting as many items, like swans, crabs, pears, within a given time, or collecting the greatest item possible, such as a cow or bear. The player can attempt a score attack mode for any level, in which they would try to make the greatest Katamari possible in the time allotted. Levels feature two secret items that can be found. The first item is a royal present that contains an object that the prince can wear. Most gifts are non-functional, but one includes a camera that can be used to take in-game screenshots. The other secret item is a cousin of the prince, which, once rolled up in main gameplay, can be used as a character in the various multiplayer modes. The game also tracks which objects the player has collected at any time, allowing them to review all the various objects within the game. There was also a multiplayer mode in Katamari Damase, and in this two-player mode, a player can choose to play as either the prince or one of his numerous cousins. The screen is split vertically. Player 1 is on the left, and player 2 is on the right. Players compete simultaneously in a small arena to collect the most objects within three minutes. The playfield is replenished with new objects periodically. Players can ram into each other, knocking items from their opponent's Katamaris, and if one player leads by a fair amount, then it is possible to roll up the opponent's Katamari. 
I'm pretty sure my cousins did this to me. And that's where, you know, I'm like, hey, do I like this game anymore? I don't understand. I would love to see, speaking of stolen game types, a Katamari Battle Royale, where you just get dropped in somewhere and you guys start like rolling around building up your Katamari as fast as you can and like picking up power-ups and random stuff to try and like dominate the world. I'd play it. I want to be the cat. That just runs by and tries Ooh. to knock it off until it's too big. That would be fun. Almost like you get to play like the different like obstacles and animals, and then you like swap to like with the bigger ones. They try and get bigger and try and like make sure they can't complete the time. I'd be down for that too. Yep. Hey, Namco. Hey, it's too bad there's those patents. <laughs> too bad. Too bad there's those patents. We couldn't pesky work around. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the story, which. Is not so much, but on the plus side, if you have not seen it, pause this, go to YouTube and look up the title screen or the title card or title cutscene, if you want to call it that, of it. It's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. But the story itself begins with a scene of the king destroying all of the stars and the moon. The next day, the king is speaking to the prince about what had happened the night before, about how he felt as one with the cosmos and that it was a beautiful symphony of destruction when he destroyed the stars. In the Japanese version of the game, the king openly admits he was drunk at the time, while the English release only implies it. He then tasks the prince with returning the stars by rolling up objects in the Katamari, hopefully before anyone notices. The game's main story is told in a short cutscene depicting the Hoshino family. It starts with the children watching a Jumbo Man cartoon, which is interrupted by a news broadcast that all of the stars in the sky, as well as the moon, have suddenly disappeared. When the children try to tell their mother, she laughs and says that no such things have happened. The story continues as the children go to see the launch of their father's space shuttle, which would have been the first to land on the moon in over 30 years. However, it is called off because the moon is gone and the shuttle has nowhere to land. On the trip to the space center, the children continue to see evidence of the king's and prince's activity as they see huge katamaris and the king himself while traveling. Michirio Hoshino even has an innate connection with the cosmos as she can feel the stars return to their rightful place. As the prince finishes rolling up the moon, the Hoshino family gets rolled up into it, Somehow unaffected by the vacuum of space, they decide to take a lunar family vacation. So yeah, it's mostly told in these non-speaking cutscenes between levels as like the kids notice what's going on and the parents are like, ah, that could never happen until the reality sinks in. And then, you know what? They're just chilling in space because it's what they do. A classic story. A classic story. (laughs) Since the days of Shakespeare. Of course. (laughs) So, like the rest of Katamari Damase, the music in the game was widely hailed as imaginative and original. It was considered one of its top selling points. Its eclectic composition featured elements of traditional electronic video game music, as well as heavy jazz and samba influences. The tracks were composed by multiple composers, with Yu Miyaki composing the most at seven and acting as the sound director. Other composers for the game were Asuka Sakai, Akitaka Toyama, Yoshihito Yano, Yuri Masumi, and Hideki Tabeta. 
Many of the tracks feature vocals from popular J-pop singers such as Yui Asaka and anime voice actors such as Nobu Matsubara and Edo Mizumori. Miyaki has stated that they chose the artist by looking for Japanese singers who were well-known in Japan but nobody had heard from in a while for whatever reason. Miyaki wanted to use vocal songs because he felt that they were necessary to make music that only Katamari Damase could do. Really fun music. He has said that game director Keita Takahashi did not give detailed directions on the sound design of the game, allowing Miyaki and his team to instead create whatever they felt would fit best. The artists were chosen after the lyrics were written, and were selected based on how well Miyaki and Takahashi felt it would gel with the world of Katamari Damase and the content of the song lyrics. They were also chosen to create a pretty silly, goofy selection of singers that would appeal to a broad spectrum of people from different generations. Once the lyrics and singers had been chosen, the music was written specifically for each artist with the intention of creating songs that were familiar but not trendy so that they would not seem dated in the future. The humming in the opening song, described by Miyaki as, quote, na-na-na-na-na-na-na, Katamari, was included as an experiment by Miyaki to try to create a memorable theme associated with the game. Now look, I'm a professional. So na-na-na-na-na-na-na. I just wanted to make sure I got that quote Of course, quote right. getting how many na's really hit in there. In response to criticisms that modern game music was not as memorable as that of older games, that was the whole, the whole reason behind mm-hmm. having the na-na-nas. Of course. Miyaki says that Cherry Tree Times is his favorite piece from the series. Katamori Fortissimo Damase is the soundtrack album to the game. It includes all of the tracks featured in the game, as well as an additional track, Katamari March Damase, a bonus song that was not included in the game. The album has 21 tracks that span a duration of 1 hour, 15 minutes, and 13 seconds. It was released on May 19th, 2004 by Columbia Music Entertainment with the catalog number. So if you, if you just happen to have this catalog around for some reason or Googling it up, it is... Pop that bad boy open. Pop get it ready. open. Start tracing them fingers. C-O- Unless you're driving. No, you, that's the best time to do it. COCX-32760. <laughs> and now the soundtrack to Katamari Damase won... Cockix. <laughs> Cockix? Oh, 32760. That's what I remember. The soundtrack to Katamari Damase won both IGN's and GameSpot's Soundtrack of the Year 2004 awards. It was also nominated for Outstanding Achievement in Original Music Composition at the 8th Annual Interactive Achievement Awards in February 2005 and GameSpot's review of the game. They described the soundtrack as based around a, quote, singular, extremely catchy theme that appeared as pop, jazz, and humming throughout the insidious, infectious music. IGN's review of the game said that not since Mario created its everlasting tune have we heard tracks so catchy and so genuine. The soundtrack album was praised in a review by Square Enix Music Online, who said that in addition to the music being outside the box, the soundtrack, quote, fits with the graphics and gameplay in every way possible, is extremely pleasing to the ears, and could very well be a great album with no game attached. He described the music as fun, catchy, and quirky, and highly recommended the album. The album reached number 191 on the Japanese Oricon 
charts. So again, this music, if you guys haven't listened to it, it's on, I know it's on Spotify because I played the game a couple months back and I was like, mm, can I see this anywhere? It's on there. And it is just an earwig the entire time because it's like Mario, a little silly, fun, and it's built for each level. Because in Mario, you hear, da na 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 you know that we're probably going underground. And then, you know, there's variations for like different sky ships and water. It's very much like that. And it's such a good album. It's such a great game too. It's on, like again, it's on Switch. They have it for dirt cheap on Steam a lot of the times. Humble Bundle has it a lot. It's, it's well worth a pickup. Cockix is what Napoleon's grandma broke in Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> That's the only reason. Yes. I remember that. Very correct. But yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, Quirky little fun soundtracks like this, stuff that it gets you like a little excited. It's it's beyond it's beyond just having like background music yeah. and something that has to be there to fill silence, but it's not like so overwhelming that it's specifically there to make you respond to things happening in the gameplay, mm-hmm. like the more theatrical type of games that we get now. It's just a game that's fun. I want to say maybe similar or on par with like the new Super Mario Brothers where maybe new Super Mario Brothers has a little bit more of that interactiveness where mm-hmm. the little Koopas jump and things along with the song but just a, a game that's upbeat lighthearted adds to the gameplay yeah and, and it doesn't like you said it, it doesn't take the background it's right there next to the gameplay neither of them overshadow each other it works to build a full environment for it. And I definitely agree with that review that like, yeah, it could stand alone as a silly fun album by itself without the need for Katamari to be there for it to be a thing. Insidiously infectious. Mm -hmm. That's just fun to say. Oh, absolutely. Whoever wrote that review had that one locked in. (laughs) They've been waiting. They've been waiting for these. Got (laughs) got a catalog of like these different terms. Boom. Pulled it out. What alliteration am I going to pull out today? (laughs) A single-level demonstration of the final version of Katamari Damase was exhibited at the 2003 Tokyo Game Show, or TGS. The demo was critically praised by the press, with GameSpot's Jeff Gerstman describing it as a good dose of weird fun. Sony expressed strong interest in pushing the game's release forward based on the TGS response, offering to handle the game's promotion in exchange. Sony advertised the game on numerous billboards and posters across Japan and created an infamous television ad of a businessman waiting for an appointment, rolling up office furniture and staff. The original prototype game's cover artwork featured the large red ball used in Tamakoragashi, but for the game's final release, Takahashi developed the game's cover art, showing a large katamari on the verge of rolling over a city, emphasizing the scale of the game. The game was released in Japan on March 18, 2004, priced at about 4,000 yen, roughly two-thirds of the cost of most major titles at the time. Namco had estimated that the game would sell over 500,000 units in Japan during its first year, and while the game did not make that metric, it had stayed as one of the top 10 games sold in Japan through its first nine weeks on the market, with more than 100,000 units sold during that period, which was considered impressive for a new intellectual property. The public reaction to the game was positive enough that Namco ordered a sequel by December of 2004. At this point, 
Namco had not considered any Western release for the game. Katamari Damase was first shown in the United States at the Experimental Gameplay Workshop during the March 2004 Game Developers Conference, or GDC. A group of Western developers from the International Game Developers Association had previously brought Mojib Ribbon to the 2003 Experimental Gameplay Workshop after seeing it demonstrated at the 2002 TGS, and had been at the 2003 TGS to look for a similar title to exhibit in 04. Discovering Katamari Damase as an ideal title to exhibit, the group arranged with Namco to have Takahashi come to the United States to present the game. The press reaction to the session was described as electric, but they were disappointed to learn from Takahashi that there were no plans for a Western release. Media attention to the game from the workshop, often called Namco Snowball Simulator, led to more pressure on Namco for a Western release. Takahashi was again invited to present the game at E3 2004. Players wanting the game to release in the West also wrote to Namco for a release. By July of 04, Namco officially announced the game's release in North America for September of that same year. The game was never officially released in Europe, though its subsequent sequels would receive European releases. And then in the Japanese language, Katamari means clump or clod, and Damashi is the renduku form. In the Japanese language, Katamari means clump or clod, and Damashi is the rendaku form of tamashi, which means soul or spirit. Therefore, the phrase appropriates to clump spirit, as we kind of talked about at the beginning, and the two kanji that form the name look similar, sharing the same right side element in a kind of visual alliteration. So it makes a lot more sense in Japanese when you're looking at this like phonetically or visually. Um, and the game is officially transliterated as Katamari Damashi in most releases. Game creator Kaida Takahashi said that the title is suddenly popped into his head and from the start, and he never changed it. So it was kind of like that thing of like, ooh, that's it. And like, <laughs> again, if we just went with this and we're like, hey, do you guys want to play some Clump Spirit or some Clod Soul? That just sounds like a really bad Dark Souls game. But <laughs> that sounds like... You know, when people on TV, like kids, want to play some fake made-up game? <laughs> yeah. Hey, we're going to play Clump Spirit. It's this game where you roll around in a ball and you try and pick up cats and pencils. Yeah. Like, that legitimately sounds like a game that I might have seen on, like, a Nickelodeon TV show. I was TV show just about to say that. One of those that's, like, <laughs> either on, like, The Amanda Show or iCarly, where it's like, you got clump, and it would have, like, that yeah. sound effect. <laughs> yep. Oh, it's definitely got that guy's voice in it, too. Yep. You're playing it on your game sphere. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, those times. <laughs> Fortunately, it is real. Mm -hmm. And Katamari Damase has spawned numerous sequels on the PS2 and newer game consoles. The game's direct sequel on the PS2, We Love Katamari, was released internationally in 2005 and 2006. Its story is self-referential, following on the success of the first game. Most of the levels are based on requests from newfound fans of The King and the Prince. Though sharing the same mechanics, We Love Katamari introduces new gameplay features such as cooperative play and new goals, such as collecting the most valuable objects that would continue through its sequels. 
On July 29, 2012, the game was included in an exhibit at the New York Museum of Modern Art entitled Century of the Child, Growing by Design. Here, the game was used to demonstrate the change in toys and playthings over the 20th century, specifically praising the game for its quirky manipulations of scale that makes it accessible for all ages. Vice President of Marketing for Namco Bandai Games America Incorporated, Carlson Choi, described the inclusion of Katamari Damase to the exhibit as a testament to the creative designs embodied in Namco Bandai's games, in addition to being a validation of video games as a modern form of interactive art. On November 29th the same year, the game was included in the permanent collection of video games of the Museum of Modern Art. Curator Paola Antonelli selected Katamari Damase among the first 14 games to be displayed in the museum, which was chosen according to a variety of criteria, including visual quality, elegance of the code, and design of playing behavior. Can you imagine making this game one day? There is a modern art curator for a big museum just like looking at it. Hmm, yeah. The visual quality, the elegance—it's—it's it's pretty wild. Like the U.S. in terms of art is typically always behind, but I don't think the U.S. has truly, truly accepted video games as an art form. We do see it in MoMA, and we see it in some other areas. But whenever I was in Scotland, when I went to the National Museum, like they had a whole history of video games exhibit, and it was so cool because you play like from the arcade cabinets to some modernized gaming. They had Guitar Hero set up into like indie games that had been featured there. It was really cool to like see like these new age ideas of what art is to be included, especially as someone who, you know, who's grown up with this and has been engrossed in this their entire life. It's very neat to see. And like you said, it's weird because we're always used to like the, oh, they're eating 10 gallons of pizza and Chinese food and their sweaty socks were everywhere and they're making this game to... Yes, this is a masterpiece of elegance that's sold over millions of units and done this, this, and this, and it is now in a history museum. Yeah, at one moment, it's clump spirit. The next moment, museum-worthy elegance. Yeah, it's beautiful. Now, a high-definition remaster of the game made with the Unity game engine, titled Katamar Damashe Reroll, was released on the Nintendo Switch and Windows on December 7th, 2018. Known as Katamari Damashe Encore in Japan, it is the first title in Bandai Namco Games Encore series of remasters. The game includes support for the Switch's gyro controls in addition to its traditional control scheme. Reroll was nominated for the Freedom Tower Award for Best Remake at the 2020 New York Game Awards. A PlayStation 4 and Xbox One version was released in Japan on November 19th, and worldwide on November 20th, 2020. And a Stadia version, Rest in Peace, was released worldwide on September 7th, 2021. Mamma mia. Mamma mia. In a retrospective in 2019, Edge noted that playing the game 15 years after its initial release reveals how influential the game has been for independent games following it, and added that, quote, Takahashi's breakout game shot through with what we think of these days as the indie spirit. It is playful and tremendously funny, deeply weird, and a game with real heart. And see, I actually said that quote earlier in the episode, so technically, I think we can attribute that to me saying that 
and that this one never happened in a perfect reality. Well, if we tell everyone that your secret gamer name is actually Edge, I could get behind uh, this. I would rather the quote stay with them then. <laughs> <laughs> Katamari Damase enjoyed moderate success in Japan. The game was not released in PAL territories such as Europe and Australia since publishers thought it was too quirky for these markets. However, EA picked up both sequels, We Love Katamari and Me and My Katamari, for release in Europe. The North American release of the game was very well received by professional reviewers, was mentioned and praised on Tech TV, and was a featured sidebar in the May 23, 2004 edition of Time magazine. Time continued to praise the game in its November 22, 2004 Best Games of the Year special, calling it the most unusual and original game to hit PlayStation 2. Most retailers underestimated the demand for such a quirky game and only purchased a few copies of this sleeper hit. It rapidly sold out nationwide, with sales surpassing 120,000 units in North America. It also won the U.S. Award for Excellence in Game Design at the 2005 Game Developers' Choice Awards, and G4 awarded Katamari Damase its Best Innovation Prize in its G-Foria of that year. Katamari Damase was one of the recipients of the 2004 Good Design Award in Japan, the first time a video game has won this award. It also won two awards from the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences for Outstanding Innovation in Console Gaming and Outstanding Achievement in Game Design, as well as nominations for Game of the Year, Console Game of the Year, and Outstanding Achievement in Original Music Composition. GameSpot named it the best PS2 game of September 2004, and it later won the publication's year-end Best Puzzle Rhythm Game, Best Original Music, and most innovative game awards across all platforms. In 2015, the game placed 13th on U.S. Gamers' The 15 Best Games Since 2000 list. In 2019, it was ranked 49th on The Guardian Newspaper's The 50 Best Video Games of the 21st Century list. Although the game has rapidly achieved a cult following and has been praised by many reviewers, it also has its share of criticism. A common complaint is that the game is relatively short and repetitive. It can be completed in under 10 hours, and the gameplay stays virtually the same all the way through. However, others, such as Electronic Gaming Monthly reviewer Mark McDonald, who gave the game an 8.5 out of 10, argued that the game's limitations are made up by its strengths, stating, Sure, you're basically doing the same thing each mission, but Katamari's elegant controls, killer soundtrack, and wicked humor make it perfectly suited for replay. As a well-executed, non-traditional game, Katamari Damashe has been influential in the game development community. Since its release, a number of other games have been inspired by Katamari, such as The Wonderful End of the World and Donut County. And so, yeah, as we come to a wrap with this episode, it really does show, again, that kind of indie spirit, that flame of like this one person being like, I got some weird ideas. I think they can work and I think people will like them. Sure, it didn't hit those 500,000 units right away and you know, to be this major blockbuster, but it was never built for that. It was never built to be this like perfectly mainstream game that followed exactly what you needed. But it followed that indie spirit of the likes of like Donut County, which is 
a fantastic game that I've played that has that spirit of Katamari in it. And it is a game that's fun. And it is a game that has silliness and a killer soundtrack as well, which it, the vinyl sold out immediately and I was not able to buy it. And so I, you know, I, do, I am distraught by that. But I live another day to have another Donut yeah. County game come out. You got to sit on those vinyl websites or it's just never going to happen. I know. It sold out so quickly and now it's like $300 on eBay. But all that aside, if you have not checked out Katamari, really anything in the catalog, it's a fun time. It's an easy game to pick up and I really enjoy it. So as we come to the end of this episode, Derek, tell the people, why did we choose this game? What do you think of it? This has been on the docket for a while, I think. Um, we've always talked about like, is this the time? Is this the time to do this? And as we're wrapping up the year and heading toward the holidays, I mean, it feels like the perfect time to talk about Katamari Damase because you really don't have to try super hard, like you said, to to get into this game. Yeah. It's so relaxing. It's a good way to wrap up the year. It's a lot of fun. It's silly. It's lighthearted. I mean, it's really hard to say anything negative about this game. No game is perfect. Every game has its problems, of course. And the longer that you play a game, the more things you can find wrong with it. Mm -hmm. But Katamari, even for those little faults, um, I think Mark McDonald probably has one of the, the better comments that we've had from reviewers on this podcast that we've mentioned. Just saying, you know, you're doing the same thing over and over again, but all that other stuff makes up for it. I feel the exact same way. And so I'm just going to steal his rating, 8.5 out of 10, because it's easier. I like it. You, what about you? Listen, you rolled up his rating. You just bowled on There's over no patent on that review, <laughs> McDonald. Should have thought ahead. Should have thought ahead. No, I agree. And Katamari, sure, it's the same type of deal, but so is Mario Kart. You know, so is Mario Party. I mean, yeah, there is some intricacies to it. But yeah, you're reaping the same thing over and over. And Katamari has at least enough shift to it where, like, you change environments. You shift up what you do. You start as a very tiny ball and go crazy with it. And yeah, there are bits of that that are silly, that aren't, you know, that are repeatable. But as that soundtrack kicks in and as you get bigger and bigger, that little dopamine hit triggers. I couldn't pick up that crab that was like poking my ball before, but now I'm picking up these crabs everywhere. That guy with that fishing pole that was hitting me? No, 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 sir. You now must scream and run in terror as I try and roll you over. So it is silly. And in that simplicity, it works of restricting your environment to like a, you know, a small playground. And then as you get bigger, you bowl over those cones that were keeping you in there. And now you're in a bigger, like bigger backyard or schoolyard. Now you're in a bigger thing and now you're going and going. And it's such a fun, versatile game. It's definitely a pickup. And if I have a rating, I would give it the guy on the motorbike who keeps hitting you, which is really frustrating on the like, third or fourth level. But then eventually you get him and you pick up his motorbike and he goes, meet me. That's fantastic. Um, out of the frustrating times, I kept hitting the cat on the one level. I wasn't meaning to, but I was trying to get around some other stuff, but like I kept falling off the edge of it and going down. That's my own user error fault um, with that. Um, and then add in, uh, probably my favorite is when you roll over food, it makes food noises. Probably out of 10. Is this game therapeutic for you at all? Like if your cat's annoying you? Yeah. Or do you use it as a threat? Oh, I mean, like, I, I hey, think it's either look, or. cats. 
I think I think if you're in a blind rage or if you want a comfy game, I think it hit, I think it touches on both sides for you. <laughs> if you're in a blind rage. I think either one works. <laughs> oh, I'm so mad I gotta play Katamari right now. Get over here, you little thumbtacks. I'm gonna pick you up. <laughs> Oh, uh, research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. The intro and outro music for this episode was composed, recorded, given to us by our friend Evan Barr and our lovely new artwork, new-ish at this point, mm-hmm. been around for a while. Where have you been? Given to us by Aaron Shattuck. And I don't think we mentioned it at the top, but we'll mention it at the bottom. This episode was selected by our patrons. You can check us out over at patreon.com slash finish the fight where you get a lot of cool different physical and digital rewards. We got some bonus episodes over there, some extra content for you to check out, as well as our D&D game and our Minecraft server. Uh, but want to thank some select members today with Sky the Bear, Duststorm, Snide T-Bird, that LL Gamer Guy, Nick Hyman, Nick Chief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, Lee Tomjohn, Keller Kane, and Brian Yost. So thank you all so much for your support. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, drop us a review. It helps us out a lot, and we love to hear from you. And as always, you can catch us over on Twitch. You can see me over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's twitch.tv slash sourman70, as well as Derek over at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. That is twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're also on Discord. It's free to join. And Alex and I are hanging out in there all the time, talking about games, talking about other stuff. Just added a channel for TV and movies. Discuss some of that as well. And we'd love to see you in there. And that is our coverage of the beautiful, odd world of Katamari Damashe. What other games do you recommend that are in this vein of oddity? Is there any indie titles that are close to your heart or even triple A's that flunked or flopped or did well, but carry on this charm? Let us know. As always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.